the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. everybody and welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host Simon Kay. I hope you guys are all well and I hope you're enjoying your holidays wherever you may be in America, in Ireland, in Australia. We have listeners from all over so we want to wish you guys the best summer ever and hope that it's fantastic and you're really enjoying yourself. We also would like to remind you please subscribe and follow wherever you can and spread the word. We want more people to know about this show and our amazing guests. Okay today I'd like to welcome singer-songwriter Eleanor McAvoy. Eleanor McAvoy is one of Ireland's most accomplished contemporary singer-songwriters. McAvoy composed the song Only a Woman's Heart, the title track of A Woman's Heart, the best-selling Irish album in Irish history. In a world where the word star and the gift of talent are often devalued, McAvoy is neither an overnight success nor a four-week wonder. A musician and songwriter of note, a real deal, possessing all of the qualities that go to make up, up the complete artist. Her career began at the age of four when she took piano lessons, taking up violin at the age of eight. Upon finishing school, she attended Trinity College in Dublin, where she studied music by day and worked in pit orchestras and music clubs by night. McAvoy graduated from Trinity and was accepted into the National Symphony Orchestra of Ireland, where she worked four years before finally taking the plunge to concentrate on her passion for songwriting. After a long, hard slog, the girl who spent the year of 1988 busking in Union Square, New York, had come a long way a route that took her through the disciplines of classical music, Irish traditional music and contemporary music to a point where she finally found success in 1992. It happened when one of her songs, Only a Woman's Heart, inspired the title for and appeared on the A Woman's Heart Anthology album. It has since gone on to become the best-selling album in Irish history, staying in the Irish top 10 for over a year. Since then, McAvoy has gone on to become an artist and performer known throughout the world. Her critically acclaimed canon of work spans six albums, several singles and appearances on numerous compilation albums and is today recognised as Ireland's most successful female singer-songwriter, having enjoyed personal chart success and numerous cover versions of her songs, Emmylou Harris, Mary Black, Phil Coulter, amongst others. Her song, All I Have, features in the HBO cult series Six Feet Under. Her co-writing song credits have seen her published with fellow writers and performers such as Rodney Crowell, Lloyd Cole, Johnny Rivers, Brad Parker, Henry Priestman and Dave Ruthery. Welcome to the show, Eleanor McAvoy. So, Eleanor McAvoy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Simon. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you. I mean, you're a very interesting guest and I always enjoy getting musicians because I'm a musician and it's nice to jump into the, their world and see the similarities and, you know, your things in common. So... You know, me and Eleanor were just talking about uh, our our music wall, my music wall behind <laughs> me, and Eleanor's, and uh, how it's nice to have these instruments. And they're they're not just pieces of furniture; they also are very practical, aren't they? Absolutely, and it's great to hang them on a wall because it's the best place to get them off the floor. You know, when you have so many instruments, they take up a lot of room. They do. And I remember actually, I have a piano, and I have it out now in the sitting room because I kind of like it there to be so the kids mess around and stuff. But I remember I had it last year in the in the room here, like as the backdrop as well, but they take up room. That's the thing, don't they? They definitely take up room. Yeah. 
So Eleanor, tell us, what, what are you up to at the moment? What am I up to at the moment? Goodness gracious me. I'm doing a couple of gigs around Ireland. I'm, I've basically been doing um, the Gimme Some Wine tour. So Gimme Some Wine is the new album. Okay. It was recorded during lockdown, which gives some uh, indication as to why it's called Gimme Some Wine. Um, and uh, I've just been taking that kind of live show uh, around Ireland. I've got a couple of festivals now for the summer. And then I'll be heading off to Germany in the autumn with it and then on to uh, Britain in the new year. So uh, February, March, like in all around England and that. And then in between that, I'm just doing bits and pieces of writing. Which, you know, I, work, I write for a lot of different artists and I have a few different projects. There's one going on with somebody in L.A. and going on at the moment and a couple of uh, a band in England and a band here in Ireland. So, yeah. Keeps me busy. With the new album, what has been the initial kind of reception of it? Do you feel that people expected this album to be different in a way? Or what was your perception of how people viewed it? Uh, gosh, well, I, I was I was surprised by um, the airplay, to be honest. I wasn't, you know, I kind of exist slightly under the radar, slightly under the radar of airplane. That's OK. You know, it's, it's my niche. It's kind of I play small venues, but I kind of do them everywhere in the world. And that kind of gets me a living. Um, so I was sort of surprised when mainstream radio here started playing it. I guess, um, particularly South Ann Street, you know, which is, you know, I, I think even I, I was I was kind of expecting it in Dublin, maybe that people would identify with South Ann Street. But then I realized a lot of people from the country had lived in Dublin for a while and kind of knew the street. And um, I think that people who particularly were, you know, from the country tended to know that particular area of Dublin, you know. So, yeah, um, I was surprised. There's certain streets that people know, yeah. like Capel Street, Talbot Street, Southdown Street. Yeah. And I think um, the other thing was um, people had told me, oh, well, don't make a physical copy of it, you know, because it's all digital now. And I said, well, OK, I was just going to release it all digitally on all the platforms. And I said, you know what, for some of the real fans, I'll make it, even if it is expensive. I'll just do a, a short run of them. And uh, then I didn't want to, I changed everything I did during COVID. I just restructured my whole business, changed the whole record company structure, started a new company, just did it all a different way. But the albums have actually, the physical albums have actually gone really well. So I just do them at a one shot, like an independent Irish retailer, Golden Discs, and they do them worldwide for me. So it's, it's great, you know. So if you're anywhere in the world, you can get it digitally. But you can also mail order it if you really want it. So. Well, that's the great thing about vinyl now. And even, you know, some artists are going back to the cassettes as well, you know. But it's great <laughs> that vinyl has come back and it kind of has a place in our hearts again and in our homes. Well, I haven't got the vinyl out yet. I'm hoping to get the vinyl out by Christmas, but uh, there's a big backlog, so I don't know. Hopefully it will. <laughs> yeah, it's harder with the vinyl. But I think it made artists reevaluate things, you know, with the pandemic. And obviously, as you said, the title of the album, Give Me Some Wine, people had that moment to reflect. And titles are one of those things, aren't they? When you have songs and you're saying, what like I call it and everything? And you look, you kind of look to what's around you, you know? And the, the great thing is that, that self-reflection during the pandemic gave people time to reevaluate their lives and what they wanted to do with their careers. For you, was it something that was a pain in the ass or is it something that gave you time to look at things differently again? Do you know, I, I feel guilty about saying that it was actually a good kind of time for me because it was so hard for so many in the industries. Now, financially, it was catastrophic. You know, I mean, I was in Melbourne, Australia when it happened and I had a whole tour ahead of me. I had like five weeks ahead of me in Australia. The Stewart tour had done really well. Most gigs were sold out. Um, so to have to come home and lose everything and I float the tour myself, you know, so it's, you know, I've paid for everything in advance, hotels, hire cars, all that. So it got very little of that back. So yeah, it was 
absolutely catastrophic, but I was grateful to get home. I was on one of the last flights out of Sydney, so I, I was very... And coming through Abu Dhabi Airport, they were taking your temperature, and they said, if your temperature's high, you should be quarantined here in Abu Dhabi. And I think <laughs> they were talking about closing the airport. They were about to close, and I was thinking, oh, God, let me get home. I wonder where there are many songs written in quarantine in airport, probably a few. <laughs> there probably were, yeah. Um, so then I got home, and it was like, oh, thank God I got home, and there was a giddiness, uh, to be honest, Simon, in the beginning. There was a slight kind of, hee hee, I don't have to work. <laughs> and that lasted quite a bit of time. And it was kind of, ah, sure, I'll have a bottle of wine because why wouldn't you? Um, and then there was a slight giddiness out of climbing into the same bed every night. And that lasted quite some time. And I mean, five or six weeks into this, the pandemic, I remember going to bed one night thinking, oh, my God, the same bed again. And then thinking, how long has it been since I've been six weeks in the same bed? And I started going back through all my diaries, you know, my appointment diaries. And it had been 30 years, 30 years since I'd had that long at the same time. Wow, 30 years. And that got me thinking. And I thought, God, Eleanor, (laughs) you know, maybe that's not right. Maybe that's not a great way for you to live your life. Now, I had a couple of other big catastrophic, big life-altering moments um, just prior to the pandemic as well. I had a relationship for 23 years and that just suddenly went south. So, um, And I moved from Wexford back to Dublin. So a couple of huge, big changes. My dad died, you know. Um, So I said, okay. I did something then that I did in the year 2000. I reevaluated my whole life on the back of a couple of things that had happened and moved everything apart and upside down. You know, for years I was on major labels, on Columbia Records, Geffen Records, and the year of the millennium, I said, no, I'm stopping all this and I'm changing. And I went completely independent and I released, you know, I don't know how many, like 13 albums then independently. And then I did this whole change during COVID and just flipped everything over again um, in a slightly different way. So it seems to me, to me, I do kind of a 20 year revamp. <laughs> so. Yeah, but that's necessary too, because I, the question I had in my head there, I was thinking, as you were saying about, you know, going back 30 years to check your diary, are you someone that gets cabin fever? Like when you get home, are you kind of itching to go on the road again? Not at all. No. And to be honest, you know, I don't know why I lived this crazy life where I just, I used to block up my units of time in 20 minutes as, you know, like, ugh. Right. You know, it's not a way to live your life. I think we know that now and we know about mindfulness, but I, I never allowed myself just to be, you know, I was always running from one thing to the next thing to the next thing. Um, and I found a kind of a profound guilt during COVID when I stopped doing stuff. I felt guilty. I wasn't like I had to be painting the house. And and it's taken a long time to cause I kind of say, OK, Eleanor, maybe this isn't healthy. Maybe you need to not feel guilty about not doing stuff every now and then. Um, so I, I'm learning. I, I do know I'm an awful lot happier now than I have been for almost all the rest of my life. So there's a life lesson there somewhere, Simon. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because sometimes you have to fall off the cliff. And even if you grab a branch on the way down, you know, you realize, okay, things need to change. And and I need to to choose something new for me to make me happy. And, you know, that thing about mindfulness, I'm not old school when it comes to mindfulness, but I, I don't, I'm not completely submerged in that world. But I always think you have to take time to look at how your life's going and you need to have those moments when you have light breakdowns and light emotional breakdowns and say okay how can I change things yeah well you know when you say you're not into mindfulness it's funny because you're a musician and I think a lot of musicians think they're not into mindfulness but to me 
you sit down, you play the piano, you play a song. What the hell is that? That's mindfulness. That's being in the flow. That's you forget, you know, that you're supposed to collect somebody from school or, you know, you forget like that's being in the flow. That's mindfulness to me anyway. No, yeah, you are right in that sense. I, I think what it is, I don't label it in the same way, but yeah. like that you do, you get lost in your instrument, you get lost in the song, you get lost in, you know, learning things. And it's a different type of mindfulness for musicians because we might sing about mental health and we might, you know, talk about it, but the music is a much more natural thing where it heals you, doesn't it? It really, really, really does. It heals you and hopefully heals other people. I mean, it's funny. It's something I have felt recently in the last few years um, as I gig. I feel an obligation to uplift people. I'm tired of dark stuff. I'm tired of dark literature and dark playwrights. And, you know, and whilst there's a time for that, I think I do feel an obligation now to uplift people. And it's not that I won't go to a dark place during the gig. You know, I have a, a song that I, you know, is used in treatment center to treat patients with anorexia. It's a song I wrote years ago, you know, Sophie. But yeah, but I mean, that it's. I'll go to some dark places, but my God, I'm going to lift them up before I send them back out there again. You know, it's like a, I don't know, a psychiatrist puts you back together before they send you back out into the street. I really feel that strongly that there's a need for that, you know, to heal hearts. And, and that I see that as being my function in society. I really do. The great thing about music is whichever way you come at it, like, for example, with me, I've always liked kind of edgy music, you know, like more... I, I mean, I like pop and I like rock and all that stuff, but sometimes I like the lyrics to be edgy and, you know, you like them to kind of have a, a little bit of melancholy in them. But then there are times you need that happiness and you need those silly songs and you need those things that uplift people because if we had too much of one thing, you know, we, we can't appreciate the other. So I think as a songwriter, you might write a song one day and someone might say, oh, that's pretty depressing. <laughs> and then... You might think another day you write a song and it's too happy. It has too good of a, you know, it's, it's, it, you think that's not my style. So I think that's the good thing about being a musician. And you can be divided with your own work, can't you? Because you're thinking that's not my style or I wouldn't write a song like that normally. But sometimes you have to embrace it. Well, I think what you're saying there is actually really interesting because I think different songs fulfill different functions in your life. You know, I think the songs you sing when you're putting the cat out, you know, I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. That's a bit of crack and you put the cat out. And then I think there's other songs that are much more profound that you listen to with a glass of wine in front of the speakers and it has an effect on you, you know, so... Um, and maybe on a late night drive back from a gig, you want to hear something a bit more profound um, to take you on the journey home that's going to touch you, you know. Um, and I, I always use the analogy of, of gold fountain pen and a big spiral, you know. Um, you know, I have a beautiful gold fountain pen, italic nib. I write italic writing and I love my gold fountain pen, but I don't take it out of the house. You know, it lives here in a desk and I don't take it on the road with me and I don't. You know, for that, I want to bring my big spiral. And, you know, if you want to, if, if you've forgotten your pen, I'll give you mine. I don't care. I can leave it on a bus. I can, you know. So, you know, they're both very important to me. <laughs> but it's horses for courses, you know. And if you lose the big spiral, you have another one to replace it. That's quite interesting what you said there about the, you know, the late night coming home after gigs and stuff. And you want to listen to something that can, because, you know, everybody, if you're a musician, you know, after gigging, you have that kind of adrenaline buzz and it's hard to come. People say, oh, you come home at three or four in the morning, would you go straight to bed? And you go, no, I, I can't do it anyway. You need to maybe watch TV or listen to music or do something to kind of unwind. But that 
that is a part of the process too, sitting in the van or sitting in the car and listening to those songs. And sometimes you need certain songs like, I, I want to listen to this now. And it also makes you think about what you do and what they do, for example. And you, you have little comparisons and you're like going, oh, I like what they did with that. And maybe you hear it differently because you've just sung your own songs in a certain way, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think... Um... I think you get ideas as well, maybe when you're in that kind of slight headspace and you're thinking over the gig and how it went and um, and then a track comes on the radio and you think, oh my God, I must do that other track tomorrow night when I play. You know, it affects your set list, I think, as the tour goes on. Yes, of course, of course, yeah. Throughout the years, how many artists, they've been happy with their work and then they hear a Bob Dylan song or Eric Clapton or whatever and they go, oh, wish I could write something like that. Because... That's the whole thing about music, isn't it? When you're on a high, there's always something you can compare it to. And it's how it makes you feel. And some people, because, you know, sometimes a lot of us have imposter syndrome. And we're like, should I be doing this? Am I good enough? And I've talked to many artists over the last two seasons. And a lot of them have a similar vein where they go, yeah, the, the public don't see this. But there are times when you feel like, is my work good enough? And you know, it's very easy to say, oh, be, stay positive and stay believing in yourself. But you have those moments when you, you're not sure if you value your work enough to keep going, don't you? It's interesting you say that, Simon, because I think it's true, but I think the reverse is true sometimes as well. Sometimes I'm driving along in the car and I hear a middle eight section and, you know, and I go, oh, for God's sake, you couldn't. And I pull over to the side of the road and I scream at the radio, you couldn't have put in the extra hour and a half to get the soft rhyme that would have been perfect there or get the internal rhyme or to match that. Seriously, you could, and I just go, oh, for God's sake, and I drive off again. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but that's good. That's I get good outraged, outraged by it. It can give different moods. I, I'm like that. I think, you know, when you're, when sometimes I'll hear songs on the radio and I'm like, oh my God, that's such a blatant ripoff or, you know, that plagiarism <laughs> there. And, and even, and, and you kind of go, okay, if they acknowledge it. But that's the thing about music. It brings out all these different emotions, whether it's of positive, negative, whether you disagree with something or you're critical of it. It's a great thing, isn't it? Because it stirs all these sensations in everybody. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's a mood altering substance, isn't it? It's just, you know, yeah, and it's, yeah, it's free for the most part. That's why I suppose music is its own drug. But when music met drugs, then it completely changed the world of these people because they probably lost themselves, but found some amazing songs. So I think music on its own is a very potent drug and it has such a different effect on different people, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, there's a very famous, very well-known, you know, songwriter in America. He's dead now, but he used to say to me, he said, Eleanor, songwriters supposed to spell, sell songs that are going to write songs that are going to sell albums. He said, you write songs that sell alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, maybe he was right. Let's go back a little bit. Well, you know, as far as we need to. But let's go back to, you know, your early life. And, and as far as I know, you grew up in Cabra, didn't you? That's right, yeah. Tell us about growing up in Cabra and, uh, you know, were your parents from there? Did you move there? What was that? Um, well, I was born and bred there, but my parents would have come from, they were both from Dublin, but they, um, different, different parts of Dublin. Um, and they ended up there. Um I mean, it was a very kind of odd household because on one hand, it was quite bohemian. My dad was a really great painter. I mean, he was a civil servant. My mother was a stay-at-home mother because she had been a civil servant. She had to give up her job with the marriage bands and stuff. Um, so you had that, like they were into music and all that kind of stuff. Um, 
but they were also kind of psychotically religious. I mean, really, really, really religious. My dad had been a Cistercian monk and, you know. Oh, wow. Um, so, yeah. So it was a very weird mixture, to be honest with you. And um, I definitely found childhood tough. You know, I definitely, definitely don't look back on those days with fondness. It was all a bit strange and suffering gets you to heaven quicker. Therefore, you know, it was it was really weird. And uh, um Cabra at the time as well. I mean, I think it's a great place now, but back then, and maybe it wasn't bleak. Maybe it was me, Simon. Maybe I was bleak. Maybe I was the one that, but it just felt grey. It felt bleak. It felt hard. I was in the folk group in Christ the King, and that provided some levity, although the priest that was in charge of the folk group was Father Ivan Payne, that was later done for <laughs> um, awful stuff uh, to do with children. Um, so. You know, there seemed to be a shadow over that time, even if I couldn't fully place it. Um, and I couldn't wait to get out of there, to be honest. Um, didn't really enjoy school either. Um, and all I wanted to do was go to college and do music. Um, and I knew I wanted to work in music, but I didn't know what end of music to work at. I didn't really know any professional musicians. I certainly didn't know a professional songwriter or even that you could be a songwriter. Um but all I did was like all I'd, I'd listen to the, the radio and I'd take down the, the, the songs and I could um, to this day I can get the songs on two listens. I can take down all the lyrics of most songs. You know, I've kind of a shorthand developed and um, I would look at the song and dissect it and see this is the verse and then it goes to middle eight and then there's a chorus and um, I'd rip it to shreds and put it back together again and try it with different chords and um, loved all that and uh, loved songs in different languages as well. I was always into languages, even languages I didn't understand. I mean, I can phonetically sing you a couple of songs in foreign languages, no idea what they mean, but I just remember the, the way it sounds. Um, so, yeah, was trying to keep, the mother wanted me to do national school teaching, so I was kind of trying to keep her happy saying I do music in college, figuring it'll get them off my back if I do music in college and they think at least I can teach or something after it, because obviously they were worried about what I was going to do. Um, but then when I got to college, that was it. I absolutely loved it. And that's where I met my mates who are my mates to this day. That's where I finally thought, I'm not a freak. I'm not, I'm just a bit slightly eccentric, but guess what? All these people are equally eccentric. So I kind of fit right in. Yeah. And, and that's the lovely thing. Like I like when you said they're dissecting the songs, because I think when you're young and you start playing and, you know, you're maybe like some people are learning by ear, some people are learning from sheet music and everything. But it's that kind of sensation when you start, you know, trying to pick out the notes on the piano and, you know, on the piano, it's a little bit easier because they're right in front of you. But on a guitar, you kind of have to look for them. They're like, I always say to people, the guitar is different because it's like they're hidden there. It's like they're secretly waiting for you. And the piano, you could be going to the toilet drunk and you could stumble on a few keys and play something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the piano is all laid out for you. It's true. It's all laid out for you, yeah. And so with the guitar, I found for me, I always tell the story, when I started playing, I only had two strings on the guitar and I used to play melodies and songs I'd hear on MTV up and down the two, very linear, you know, <laughs> yeah. and I'd, I'd, I'd learned to scale up and down on the two strings. And after a year playing this guitar that was in my apartment, I, um, I, I was only 20 when I started playing. And then what happened was I said, you know, I'm going to put all the strings on the guitar. And then I put all the strings on and then I... I started doing the chords, but that year of 
linear playing up and down the strings really helped me because then it, yeah. it taught me, you know, the distance between tones, semitones, all of these things. And I was learning completely by ear. So it's nice to unlock an instrument like that, isn't it? To find those hidden notes, to find those things and dissect them, as you said. God, so I love that story. I love that story because I find so many people pick up a guitar and they don't care about the melody and they learned a couple of chords and they just do the same old, same old. But what you were doing there, I think um, you were really exploring melody. You were saying, what is a melody? It's a series of notes. So what's my decision? I have a note, then I have a choice. Do I go up? Do I go down? Do I stay the same? Do I have a rest? If I go up, I go down. How much do I go up by? How much do I go down by? Do I go up by like a whole octave song? We're over the rainbow. Or do I just yeah, go yeah, yeah. Like that? Do I just go up in steps and prayer, Jack? And prayer? You know, all those kind of things. That makes a melody fun. That makes a melody original and, you know, um, gets it away from the generic. So I, I love that. I love that. <laughs> you know, when you're on that string and and then you're there, you know, and you, you're you not even sure. Like, I think I had a tuner and it was a bit flat. And then I'd be trying to tune to, you know, someone had a piano and I brought the guitar one down and I went, oh, tune to that note, you know, the low E or whatever. And you're just completely discovering this stuff. And, um, but it's amazing. Like you're, you're just doing like a major scale and then you figure out later on, it changes to a minor scale and you're like, oh my God. And then that's a totally different song or that's a totally different melody. You know, it is. Yeah, it's incredible. Minor, third, third, major, minor. It makes all the difference in the world. One little, one little tiny note. Yeah. And that's the beauty of it. And for me, like I was a self-taught guitarist and I, I learned music then later. But I always it was always by ear. And, you know, I'd have the either like a cassette player or the uh, I had a little mini disc man or a CD player. And, you know, you'd be just looping between spaces and trying to find that riff or trying to find that thing and i remember even finding years ago i found like an old eric clapton album and i had been practicing over it and what i didn't realize with the double tape deck i had accidentally recorded over the album so you had eric clapton playing really good guitar and me with my bad timing trying to improvise over it. I wasn't trying to play what he was playing. I was trying to improvise. Yeah. But when I look back, I go, wow, yeah, my time is off there, but I see where I was going. <laughs> it's gas. It's gas, isn't it, to find that. So for you then, like you started playing piano and when you were very young and then the violin. So was that a, a different transition or like where you want a classical route at that stage? Well, I started playing piano. My sister would teach me piano. I was about three, I suppose. And then I... um. I just lifted up the guitar in the house because there was guitars around and I kind of looked at my brother and looked at my sister and what are they doing and tried to copy the shapes. You know, I used to look at them <laughs> and eventually they'd every now and then they get frustrated. They said, no, you put that finger there. You just put that finger there, you know, and they'd help me out and then they'd go off. Um, so that was kind of instinctive. And then when I went to violin, I got lessons, so proper lessons. So then I went on to get proper lessons in violin and piano. But, it, you know, it's very interesting what you were saying there, because to me, the whole process was actually instinctive. People say, well, you came out of classical music. And actually, no, I didn't. I came out of pop radio, you know. Um, I came out of picking up things in the house and playing them. The classical thing nearly kind of came afterwards. And then I did the two side by side. And I loved the two. I loved the two I really did but there were two very different things like you know um like when I went on to college when I went in there I'd sometimes switch off that instinctive brain just to look at manuscripts and just to do the analytical stuff 
you know, um, history and music and counterpoint and fugue and all that. And then I'd switch that off and I'd switch on the other brain, the instinctive stuff to go off and play with whatever band I was moonlighting with that week, you know. Um, so I always had the two side by side. And of course, underneath it all, I was writing songs in my bedroom on my own, not singing them or playing them or letting anybody hear them. And when I say writing songs, I mean, I would have had a hundred songs at this point that nobody would have ever, like nobody would have ever heard, um, which is very bizarre, bizarre behavior. Yeah. But I, I just couldn't stop writing them. Couldn't stop writing them. But that's good. I mean, you were stockpiling them, but you weren't maybe sure what for or would they ever see the light of day? Yeah, I don't know what was going on in my head. I, I knew that I couldn't not do it. <laughs> I couldn't see the means of getting them out to people. And also, I don't know whether I had some romantic notion that I was like Emily Dickinson and I die when I was 35 and they'd find all these songs or something. I really don't know what was going on in my head. But, uh, yeah. but the pleasure for me was in writing and it kind of it satisfied a need in me as a person. It still satisfies a need in me as a person. I'm not... <laughs> It's funny, I, I'm a big believer in connections. And when I say connections, I mean things that people have in common who've never met, right? It's quite interesting. Like you went to Trinity, my sister went to Trinity. And then the next thing I'm moving on to, you were a busker. That's how I started playing my music. I was a busker for like two years. And uh, I literally knew one song. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think at the end of my, you know, uh, two year stint as a busker, I had like a set of 70 songs, you know, so you it, it always showed me how you can learn and how you can transition. And then for me, I remember busking and being on the street and playing all sorts of music, you know, whether it be U2, Christy Moore, Oasis, whatever, and people going by. But I always remember the musicians coming from the bars and they were in the professional bands playing, right? And they'd pass by and they'd be like, I, 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 they might know me or they might know me. They'd say, hi, Simon. And they'd be going to Java's coffee shop in Galway there and they'd be going for their after okay. coffee and, you know, chatting about music. And eventually I kind of started getting to know them. But then for me, that was like led into, you know, joining a band and setting up bands. So it's really nice when you're at that level where you're busking and you might not know much you know, so, no many songs, but you can see there's a way to move ahead and you can see there's a possibility of joining those other professional musicians in another capacity. So, you know, busking is a, a great thing. I always say to any young kids now, you know, go ahead, busk, do it, try it, you know, because you probably remember in that time in Ireland busking, you know, sometimes the guards would give you trouble and, you know, there'd be taken they'd say you can't busk here and then i remember a guard kicking my my case with money on it and i said to him, you, can't fucking, you can't treat me like that i was raging at him ah god you had all these different uh, things that happened to you when you're busking and it's a wonderful experience isn't it a wonderful experience i think it's character forming i think i found it very hard to be honest with you i didn't love it um but you know what i loved and this is going to sound very um materialistic I loved the fact that it could make me money and I saw it as a means to survive oh, yeah. if I was hard up like and I, mean, I remember busk, I busked in New York for a long time and like I was in like when I was flat broke at the time I mean absolutely flat broke I remember going into Manhattan one day and I had the dollar subway for it to get in I didn't have the dollar sub for it to get back at home again you know and I brought the violin with it and I thought okay if I go in and try and get a job at least if I have the violin with me I can busk and I'll get a dollar at least to come back home again. But 
I loved it. And like I thought, even if I get a job, I won't get paid for a week or, or maybe a month, you know. Um, and I loved that thing of survival that if I had to flee Ireland tomorrow and I had the fiddle on my back that I could set up somewhere and play and somebody put something into the case. So I liked that side of it. But to be honest, I found it very, very, very hard. There was guys trying to rob me, guys trying to steal my money, people trying to come on to me, people trying to convert oh, yeah. me to... And um, the cops, I know, in, in, in uh, like in New York, at that time, New York was a very, da- very dangerous place. This is like in the, the late 80s, you know, and uh, it wasn't safe. You know, it's much safer now. But um, I don't know. There was a... The cops were on a, actually kind of good to me. There was a couple of cops that were on horseback. I remember the time they used to come around and they'd get to know me and they'd say, how are you doing, man, today? You're doing all right today? And I'd go, yes, yes, I'm doing this, sir. I'm doing fine, you know. Um, and there was a vigilante group at the time. I can't believe I'm saying oh, this. Yeah. There was a vigilante group called the Guardian Angels. They used to have red... The Guardian with the red berets. Red berries, and yeah, and the white t-shirts. And uh, I obviously am not in favor of vigilanteism at all, but... Actually, I was very grateful to them because they'd walk by me and they'd say, you know, is everything okay? And I go, yeah, yeah. And I sometimes was grateful if somebody was giving me a real problem. I was going, oh, God, please, I hope the guardian angels or a cop comes by soon, you know. Wow. Um, That would be a magnificent album cover, you standing between the guardian angels. (laughs) Oh, no, 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 no. Maybe an inner, maybe an Um, inner leaf uh, photo. You don't, not on the front, but it's a great story because we all, you know, we always used to hear of those groups and people, it was like another world, but to find yourself busking and then, you know, them guys being there to help you out a little bit. It's crazy. Yeah, they were great. And you'd kind of form, sort of get to know some of the other buskers. And uh, it's funny to this day, I still feel an affinity with buskers, like when I'm, you know, walking down yeah, the streets nearby here, you know, and I people buskers, I always kind of, <laughs> actually sometimes it costs me a fortune to go down Grafton Street. I just, I can't stop giving people money because I'm like, oh my God, how long have they been out? I mean, it always puts a smile on my face because you're kind of, you know, like you've been down that road and you've experienced it. And especially when you see young buskers and they're just starting their journey, wherever it may lead. And, you know, it's, it's lovely. It's a, it's such a natural thing. And, it doesn't matter if it's an Irish dancer or tapping, dancing on a board or if it's someone on a guitar. Or We used to have the Plink Plink guy in Galway. I don't know if you ever saw him. He, he used to play a cardboard banjo and he used to make all the sounds with his mouth. But there was like nothing. And people would give him money. And I always think and you can do anything as long as it's entertaining. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of really talented people and they don't know where to go or how to, and they, you know, busking does it for them in the hothouse flowers, you know, the Benzini brothers came out of that, you know? Yeah, of course. Of course. You know, like from busking in New York and everything, then I imagine at that stage, you, you know, you knew what kind of music you were into, but like, if you go back a little before that, when you were writing the songs in your bedroom and stockpiling them, was there something that was really influencing, like when it comes to pop and contemporary music and singer songwriters? There was tons of stuff. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, Kate Bush is now back in the news and she's, you know, but like, um, uh, it was very into Kate Bush, you know, uh, Man With His Child In His Eyes, Wuthering Heights, all that stuff, early Kate Bush, um, the Red Shoes, all, all those, those kind of albums, the early albums. Um, I was really into Ella Fitzgerald, Billie Holiday. I loved Joni Mitchell, you know, Leonard Cohen, Bob Dylan, Neil Young, um, Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin. I mean, I was into all these different genres, just, you know, everything from kind of, you know, heavy rock to jazz to folk to... Um, 
and I, but it had to be about the song to me. The song is what really grabbed me. You know? The melody had to catch you. If it was a great song and pop, I loved pop, still love pop to this day. Like I mean, Sylvia's mother or one, you know, Dr. Hook, any of those. I'd like used to devour songs like that or Goodbye, Michelle, my little one. I was just playing it for my daughter there recently. She said, Mom, it's an amazing song, you know. And children are now, like my daughter's 11 and she loved the 80s songs. Like today. Yeah. I heard her in the kitchen and you know, that's, you know, Berlin, take my breath away. You know that song? Yes. Take my breath away. She yeah, was yeah. in the kitchen singing it. And my wife said to her, you like that song? She loves the 80s stuff and that genre. And even 80s, she loves 80s movies because that feeling, uh, kids are kind of getting that sensation again. And you see it now with, you know, whether it's Kate Bush or Metallica with Stranger Things, all of these things are coming back. And in one way for me, it's a it's a bad thing in one way because we're, we have a lot of plagiarism and, you know, extreme copying. But another thing I think in the, what it will lead to is really good influencing of these kids to write better music. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think the more genre they're exposed to, they realize it's not about being into indie music or being into country music or being, you know, it's about good music. Good music, good melody. I'm sure you can have a preference for this, that or the other, but, you know, um, you know, good songs, a good song. A good song. And the thing is, what's always the thing, if, you know, if someone says, oh, I don't like that song or I don't like that band or I don't like that style of music, but then they hear another song by that band and, you know, they go, wow, that's an amazing song. And they're like, I didn't know it was that band. But you see, what's happened there is the melody. Because the melody can be in all styles of music, but sometimes, like if you think of heavy rock or metal music, there can be great melodies going on, but you just don't like the extreme nature of it or the heaviness of the music. But then you could see somebody with a cello playing that particular song and you go, that's so beautiful. So it's all in the melody. It is, yeah. And I mean, the arrangements are kind of the cosmetics, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the song, the stripped back song is, the construction that's that's the that, that's what it's really about that's the bones of the song for me that's it yeah so let's go back to when you wrote your first song you know and, and i and i don't know was it something that was like a quick construct or was it something that you labored over for a while but did you feel that it was influenced by any kind of writer in particular the first song I wrote was when I was very young. I was about seven or eight, and it was in Irish, and it was called Tear Nanog, and it was inspired. Oh, really? Yeah. Tear Nanog, Tear All in Your Shy. And, oh, uh, and then a couple of years later, when I was nine or ten, I wrote a song, I wrote an intro to it because it was kind of, I did a, you know, and it was about me writing this song when I was a child, because now I was all of nine. And uh, I did it for Sloger, one of those things. Um, and then when I wrote, in, when it was about nine or ten, I wrote my first song in English when I was uh, called I'm Being Bugged by Parents. And then I got into the real angsty stuff from like 13, 14 onwards than I did. Um, and actually one actually ended up on the on the on my first album, a song called For You, that I wrote when I was really quite young. Um, and it got very dark and very... Um, <laughs> very self-indulgent after that uh, for a while yeah, it, it's funny isn't it how i remember my sister was a big marcy fan you know and oh, you know, she'd have all the mises murder and all of so this lovely. yeah and lovely. it's funny because there's that the teenage angst from the 80s and even the 90s is very different to now i mean nowadays mm. people look at Billie eilish and she's an amazing singer but i i saw something recently and it said it showed a picture of Billie eilish and she was looking sad with her makeup and stuff and someone said this is what young 
kids think depression is. <laughs> yeah, I think depression is bandied about a bit, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, you know, there are times when we feel sad. There's times when we feel really, really sad and that's not depression. And that's not the kid's fault. They're hearing stuff and they're label. You know, we're micro-labeling everything. Yeah, yeah. You know, from gender to this, you know, and we're, we're, we're putting millions of labels on things. And, you know, sometimes that's really good so that, you know, people with autism are diagnosed, you know. But sometimes people are just a little eccentric or they're, you know, and, you know, they're... they're, they're sometimes I think Irish society is good at embracing somebody who's a little unusual or a little and just oh, make it doesn't really matter just come sit down have a cup of tea with us you know and um, bringing everybody along with you and I think sometimes we're singling out people to well that person has depression and this person has this and I'm not sure it's entirely healthy all the time yeah but but like you said there with that i think sometimes i don't know if it still exists i think it does a little bit is people talk about things more but i think in the past it was kind of like listen don't worry about it sit down have a cup of tea but then maybe the conversation doesn't continue or get deeper it's it just kind of like will make you feel better well yeah that's yeah that's a good point yeah, yeah. but it's kind of still brushed away in, in the sense that we won't get into it too much but we're there for you you know that kind of way yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think you make a good point there. I think, yeah, I think maybe I'm being a little too shallow in what I said a minute ago. I think, you know, sometimes people really do want to talk and you have to acknowledge, you know, and accept that. I know, and hopefully they'll they'll keep speaking, you know, that you don't kind of say, Ashley, you're fine to them, you know. But I think our problem is that, you know, not everybody can speak to everybody about everything. And yes, yeah. the thing is that, you know, sometimes it takes a, 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 an aunt or a friend or somebody yeah. to be able to talk to. So because some people don't know how to deal with those conversations, do they? Yeah. And I think putting stuff up on social media is not always a great idea, you know, because there's so much stuff out there. I mean, even myself, I've taken a bit of a step back from social media over the last year or so, you know. Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I it's good. Cool. It, a bit, but I don't interact that much. I come back off it again because it's because uh, it is it can be quite disturbing. I notice myself with social media. I don't even. I met someone there for a drink recently, and we took some photos. But I I don't post stuff on social media like that. And then they, I think they thought, oh, he he'll post it, and I get the photo. And then he said to me, oh, will you send me the photo? Because I think he was surprised I didn't put up. But I don't really put. I only put stuff to do with music or the podcast. I, I for me, it is like. I just don't I just don't have that necessity now to show my kids and my family life and to say, oh, I ate at this fabulous burger joint and it's called this and that. I just don't. For me, there's better things I can be doing. Yeah. I mean, I think it's particularly interesting when it comes to kids. You know, I've never, ever posted a picture of my, my uh, you know, uh, of, you know, of my, my, my daughter or my stepkids or anything, um, because I think that's their choice to make. Now, I mean, now, she, now she's, you know, over 18, so it's fine. But um, like the thing of people posting pictures of their kids, I go, oh, I'm not sure about that. I'm really not sure about that. In one way, I think with social media, what it's also done for like the entertainment world and, and when we talk about talent and the talents of people, it kind of, especially if you imagine during the pandemic, everybody was putting everything on and some things are entertaining and some things are not. It was a huge pool. And the problem is for artists who have put in all the work and who have you know, do put in the work every day, their work kind of gets lost in it, you know, because we're, we're sometimes going for silliness just for entertainment reasons. And then the person who does write great stuff or even if it's literature, it's hard to put it in there because it's like this pool of everything. 
That's so interesting. I mean, I see it in the music business where, in the, you know, in the year, years ago, there was a kind of a filtration system because you had to get a record deal and you had to be of a certain standard to get that. Nowadays, that doesn't apply. You don't even have to go to a studio. You can do your album on your in your bedroom on your laptop. And I think more than now, we need journalists, music journalists, people like yourself doing podcasts and stuff to filter, to do the work uh, for people to so that you listen to 30 things and say, well, actually, those 29, I'm not mad about, but this one I'm going to pick to do a podcast on. And I think that that's um, an incredibly important role in society today. And I think, you know, it's an awful pity that we're not paying journalists enough now, you know, that uh, um, that their fees have gone down. And Can I go back then, obviously, to when, you know, you started gigging, like, or not, I won't say gigging, but when you start in 1992, when things started taking off for you and stuff, and you were playing with a three-piece and so on, and um, with a woman's heart, you know, the first time you did that song, was that a song that was there for a long time and you knew exactly what you were going to do with it or it had different kind of, um, how will I put it, uh, appearances for different bands or how how did it kind of become what it did? No, I mean, if you actually hear my very original demo, um, I it's pretty, and you, if you just play the demo and I was to play the one that was kind of the big, it's it's practically the same. I mean, it's practically yeah. a string quartet. It's in a different key, but it's it's the same. The strings come in in the same part. It's like, it's it's practically identical. So that was very similar. I think when I initially wrote it, I mean, I, I had a lot of slow songs. So I, I wouldn't actually always do it on a gig because I had too many slow songs. So I'd, I'd only do it if I was maybe short of a number on a gig um, at that time. Um and people say, well, did you know what was special? And I went, you were special to me. But I mean, um, did I think it was going to be a hit? No. Like, why would I think it was going to be a hit? For a start, it was the slow songs where hits tended to be faster. Um, secondly, it was slightly odd construction. Started with the chorus, which is a little unusual. Thirdly, the title had the potential to alienate 50% of the population, which is not a great idea in a hit song. Um, fourthly, it's a song with no rhymes. You can count on one hand the hit songs in, in the history of pop that have had no rhymes in it, you know. <laughs> um, there was the Simon and Garfunkel one. There was, you know, Separate Lives. You know, um, so, you know, did I think it was a hit song? No. <laughs> Definitely not. Of course, there's not many. Did I think it was a good song? Yes, I did. I knew it was a did the good song. I thought I'd worked hard at it. You know, that album itself was kind of melancholic and, you know, it was as a kind of poignant songs and, you know, very folky and traditionally. So did you see your style fitting in with that or were you like thinking you're going a different direction? <laughs> no, no, I, I was already kind of much harder sort of um harder edge like kind of a rock band at the time it's three-piece rock band and then it was a four-piece rock band so it was much harder and it was funny I do remember that was one thing I do remember when we were mixing a uh, woman's heart because Mary I was playing I, I, Mary Black heard the song I had been doing session work with her band for a long time and it was one of the things in the studio she said oh we need to turn the snare down and I said no, no I want the snare you know and uh I kind of I wanted the bass line really high as well I got my way in the bass line I did turn the snare down in the end so yeah I compromised a little bit um and when I did it myself I did a slightly different kind of slightly different take I mean same song but I mean even now the way I do it it's more kind of it's, there's a slightly different vibe to it again the groove has changed I just do it in electric and you know um so yeah I mean um 
Yeah, it's a very interesting question, actually, Simon. It's a good one. So, yeah, same song, but yeah, it's maybe slightly harder edged when I did it. I recently saw, just I came across it by accident, you know, uh, Howard Stern in the US, and he, um, so he have, sometimes he'd have artists on or songwriters, and he'd, he'd talk about, you know, like how, where the song came from and so on. But that song by Natalie Imbruglia, the Torn, you know, na 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 na. So he had the original songwriter on, and she said, "Oh, I had a different vision for that song." And he, but they said they contacted me, and of course, you know, they wanted to change it. And she sang her version, and it's like it's very similar. The melody, you know, is is the melody, but you can see where it's kind of different. It's more alternative in certain sections, and how she sings the notes and everything. But what I always think is. When you're a songwriter and you have, and you're also a singer or have a band, whenever you want to do that version of the song, you know, you can either stick to the way you wrote it, but then if they released it the exact same way, maybe you might change it to make it more rockier or the tempo. It's, it's one of these things where you go, I don't want it to sound like that other artist if, if you're the songwriter. Yeah, I think a good song should work in a lot of different ways anyway. I think if it's a really good yeah. song, it'll, it'll take a lot of treatments, you know? Um, but then there's some people who just do a classic version of a song. You think, Jesus, that'll never be beaten. You know, I mean, really like, um, you know, when people do covers of things and you go, why, why would you do a cover of that song? It's, it's, it's perfect as it is, you know. One thing I discovered this year that I never knew, and I was really shocked, and I think is that I never knew Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It was originally by Book's Face. No. <laughs> No. <laughs> yeah. No, no. That was on the Private Dancer album. That was a, I thought it was Rupert Tyner, and uh, not Rupert Tyner. Um, uh... There's one of Tina Turner's songs and Books Fizz Rose. I'm nearly sure it's that one. You can check that out after. <laughs> I don't think so. I don't know. Okay, well, I'm not sure. I'll just check it. No, because what's love got to do with it? She didn't like that. She didn't want to do that song. Um, she hated the song, didn't want to record it. Books Fizz, obviously, from Eurovision, making your mind up and all of that. I read that and I was like, no, I like you. I was like, no, that couldn't be. And you hear their version and it's different. It's very different. Things are heard in session work and someone says, wow, they're really good lyrics. The music might be a bit corny or music might be bad, but the lyrics are really good. You know, I heard even today, the manager of Nirvana said he really liked the music, but he never liked the lyrics, you know, and that kind of stuff. So people have different opinions about stuff. And, um, this is the thing about music. One artist can do it and you can go, oh, wow, that's amazing. And then you hear the original songwriter and maybe they have a totally different style. So it's all subjective, isn't it? It is. But I think sometimes songwriters, uh, and I say this with great respect to songwriters because I love songwriters, but um, they're not always the greatest performers. They're not always the greatest exponents of their own music. I remember one night being in a wine bar very late at night with Jimmy Webb and he got up drunk and he did Wichita Lineman at the piano and somebody said who's that making a mess of Wichita Lineman and somebody else said the guy who wrote it you know um I think sometimes other people who are professional artists they put their heart and soul into practicing their vocals practicing their instruments practicing their performance techniques you know they're better at it sometimes they're better at it than the songwriter who sits up in the attic and writes songs you know um I mean I remember once doing a demo of a song called The Road to the South and I uh, was a co-writer with, with, with Dave Rotheray and uh, and uh, Liza Carthy did it. And I heard her version of it and went, OK, I'm never going to sing that song because <laughs> her version of it yes, was yes. so brilliant. And she put she got something extra about the song that I 
she, her, her version was streets ahead of mine, even though I wrote it, you know, so. I think just look there. I just checked while I was looking at the books. Fizz, yeah, they, they didn't write it. Their writers wrote it. They had their version of it. But their writers, whether I'm not, I, I don't, I'd have to check deeper. Are the guys in the band? But probably not. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think there was six it's, uh, six different writers involved in the Private Dancer album. I know Rupert Hine wrote two of the songs. Mark Knopfler oh, wrote a couple, okay. I think. Uh, Paul Brady wrote one, actually. Steel Claw was written by our own Paul Brady, yeah. So. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, that an artist like Tina Turner and Books Fizz, you'd never put them in the same room. But a song can be that, can't it? A song yeah, can be. totally, like, can be anything, you know. It can be for any artist. And when you even consider, like, Prince and Sinead O'Connor, their styles are so different, but yet nothing compares to you. You know, that song became such a big hit. And and I think what happens in those, she made it her own. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she did a great version of it. But, you know, any songwriter, like you take Diane Warren or whatever, you know, I mean, she'll write songs for Cher or Bon Jovi or, you know, it doesn't matter. A huge variety of artists, but uh, it's a different thing, songwriting. It's a different skill. What's quite interesting, around that timeline, that 1992, you know, when you got signed to Geffen. Okay, so that time, I remember in, in 1992, uh, I was a big Guns N' Roses fan. And Guns N' Roses came to Ireland on their User User Illusion tour. So the A&R guy, Tom Zutaut, or however you pronounce his name. But was, was that around that time that, like, he was in Ireland because they were on tour here? Or how did you kind of, how did he come to your gig? Was he... Just in Ireland by chance or for their gig? He was actually in Ireland um, to sign a band called My Little Funhouse that were based out of Kilkenny. That's who I was thinking about. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, before he went down to Kilkenny, he was spending a night in Dublin and he went to the Harcourt Hotel for, uh, to the bar there and, and he said, um, is there any good music around? And there was a, a barman there who apparently said, um, there's a really great new artist. She's gigging down in the Bagot Inn. Uh, it was a Monday night, an unusual enough night to be looking for music. Um, but I was I had a regular gig in the Bagot Inn on a Monday night. And uh, he walked into the gig that night. And after the gig, he, I had two little cassette demos for sale. I had like a load of, I mean, I had so many songs at this point, And I even had them recorded and everything. Um, and he came up to me after the gig and he said, my name is Tom Zuta. I, I'm, uh, I work for Geffen Records. I'm in a, one of the top A&R guys there. He said, I've signed Guns N' Roses, Motley Crue, and he lamed off all this whole lot of names. And he said, I want to sign you on a worldwide deal to Geffen Records. I, yeah, I thought he was, I, I actually thought he wasn't quite right in the head, to be honest. I actually thought, oh, that poor guy, you know. I thought he was delusional or something, you know. Luckily, I was very polite to him. And I said, oh, really? Oh, you sit down there now. And um, I had cake for some reason, I had somebody's birthday or something. And I was making tea and cake after the gig. I said, do you want to go? And I gave him a cup of tea and some cake. And there was actually some Irish A&R people at the gig that, night because uh, I was getting a bit of interest from other labels so there was somebody from Sony Ireland there somebody from Warner Brothers Ireland somebody from Universal Ireland and the guy from Sony said um, he's actually a really important man you might want to talk to him <laughs> and I looked over and there was a guy with him and it's because he looked like a you know he looked like a dra- tramp I mean he long hair really really scruffy looking and um, there was a guy in a suit with him and I said who's the guy in the suit and somebody said that's his driver Um, he's driving the limousine so uh, so I went back to the guy and he said, look, look, he said, just just meet me tomorrow at midday in um, the Conrad Hotel. 
So overnight, I talked to a couple of people and made some phone calls. And there was a couple of people. And one of the guys in, in uh, Virgin in London said, oh, my God, Tom Zuta, isn't, are you serious? Like, he said, yeah, meet him tomorrow. I mean, he's a really important guy. You've no idea. Like, he's like Geffen Records is probably the hippest, biggest hap- happening. Is, you know, Nirvana. It was a very small label. It only had maybe 40 artists. But like the artists were, you knew every one of them it was Joni Mitchell. It was Nirvana. It was Guns N' Roses. You know, E.G. Brickell. Yeah. Um, so, in fact, he signed that. He signed Edith Bacall as well. When I got to the Connor Hotel at 12 o'clock, they said, oh, yes, uh, Mr. Zuta is here. He's up in our presidential suites. They sent me up to this presidential suite, the grand piano. And I'm incredible. And he was sitting there with a piece of paper in front of him. And he'd been listening to my demo tapes all night, to the two demo tapes. And he wrote down the list of 12 songs. And he said, these are the 12 songs I want on your first album. And he said, probably in this order. And he said, um... Uh, is there he said uh, talk to me but he says is there a producer you want to work with and is there a band you want to work with and I said I have to work with my own band I said I won't work with another but I have to have my own guys and he said okay that's okay and he said um, I said if I let you have your own band will you consider working with my producer and I said well who's your producer and he said Pat Moran and he was a guy who had done a whole lot of like Rush and a whole lot of Robert Plant and a whole lot of people like that so um and I'm actually, he said something interesting to me as well. He said, you know, there's two ways you could go. He said, you could go country or you could go rock. Which do you want to go? And straight away I said rock. And he said, okay, fair enough. And he said, so, okay. Um, and after that, it happened amazingly quickly because I had the songs ready to go. I mean, they were written, they were arranged. They were, you know, I literally, all I had to do was get into a studio and do it. Um, and it only couple took, took a couple of months, which for major record labels, like your, you know, your contract at those times was like a telephone directory. It was so sick, you know. Um, so mo- things moved pretty fast after that. Because A Woman's Heart was about to be released. And so that when that yeah. came up in the conversation, was he like thinking, OK, so is, this song is, uh, you know, the song you're about to release is a very rocky or, you know, w- was he thinking this style is different? <laughs> I think he would have gone for a bit more of the way it maybe would have been done on the demo. But obviously, it, it, he had just was signing me now. And the next thing this time comes out and where everybody's watching like Jaws on the floor as this thing is hitting, you know. Um, uh, and it was funny. There was a great story about the, um, uh, was it the bodyguard or was number one that I will always love you. There was some oh, big yeah, track, Houston, massive, yeah. that was number one everywhere in the world, like every single country in the world. And they were ringing up the record company in Ireland going, why the hell isn't that number one? Who the hell are these six women who are number one in Ireland? Yeah, yeah, yeah what's going on? So, I mean, you know, this was this had taken everybody by surprise. He was then kind of, well, maybe do that one the way you've done it already. <laughs> so he, at that stage, was hedging his bets a bit, you know. Um, and he kind of wanted it the same way. I remember at at that time, I think 17, 18, and uh, no, I was 19, I think that time, and we were going, I remember, to Slane, and my little fun house were playing in Slane with Buns and Roses. But I remember the word even around before that was, oh, there's a new band. They're like, oh, wow. you know, that style, Guns and Roses, yeah. and they're going to be signed to Geffen, and they'll probably be playing Slane. So there were, it, it was, you know, when you read music magazines and, you know, whether it be hot press, or the enemy or whatever. There was a lot of talk about My Little Funhouse, obviously. So they were, they, they were, you know, they, they kind of, and, and it, at the time they were big and then it didn't work out as well for them, I think, in the long run. But it's quite interesting, isn't it, how uh, an A&R guy comes over looking, you know, to sign bands like that and then discovers a different artist. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, and you never know. I mean, God, it's just the music industry is so bizarre. You just don't know how it's going to roll, you know. And um, I've had huge amounts of luck in my life. I'm very lucky. Um, No, I've had quite a few bits of bad luck too. But, um, you know, I was very, very, very fortunate that that night he happened to see me then. And to be honest with you, if he hadn't come in, I think I would have made my way in the music industry. Not not maybe, you know, that way, but I think I would have weighed some way in the music industry and maybe on a different route or a different course. But um, but that was the one that you took me on. And God, it took me to work with great producers, great studios around the world, um, with musicians I wanted to work with. You know, I mean, God, what a privilege. If you do what I do for a living, I mean, that's nirvana, that's heaven, you know. Yeah, that's really good. And then when he left Geffen, and then you changed oh, record companies, went to Columbia, and you, you had What's Following Me and that precious little. Yeah, I mean, when you say you change companies, like if only it had been <laughs> that easy. Like, um, I, I, I was, they, they, would, they wouldn't let me go in, in Geffen, and my A&R man was gone. Now, anybody knew that if your A&R man goes, you just get off the label. There's no point in you being there. You know, there's no A&R man wants to take you on. And if they do take you on, you're going to be a nuisance to them because they want to make their name with somebody. And they're not going to make their name with me because I was the girl that was signed by Tom Zuta. So um, I, they said, no, no, we want you to work with this other A&R. I pleaded with them. They wouldn't let me go. And I said, OK, well, I'll try working with this guy. And I, I met him twice. And I just said, oh, my God, this is not going to work. This is just not going to work. So pleading and begging and everything. Eventually, they let me go. Um, and it was funny because at that time, bands, are kind of the worst thing that could happen to you was, was to be dropped. I was praying to be dropped. I, you know, and people would say how hard it is to get a record deal. And I would think to myself, do you know how hard it is to get out of one? <laughs> if you think it's bad trying to get one, you know. And I even, we came up with all these schemes. I was going to write all these really religious songs <laughs> thinking if I found God, they'd want to drop me. You know, we, we had, I had great actually crack for two nights writing all these semi-religious oh, to get songs out of a going, deal. oh, he's my Lord. And I, and I was going to submit these demos and go yes yes i want to stay on geff and here's my new songs i found god and you know um and we we great crack doing that but uh, it didn't come to that in the end actually so they let us go which is great and actually they gave us our tapes which was incredibly uh lucky um so uh then i then i needed another deal of course so um ended up then um uh left la and went to new york and ended up with columbia records in new york signed out in new york so um that was a whole other adventure so did two albums for them um, and had a lot of success with a song called Precious Little on the Precious second Precious Little, great song. Um, thank you very much, thank you. Um, and then went, you know, at the end of Precious Little, I had been touring in Europe with them. Uh, there was kind of the American Roadshow came to Europe, and even though I was Irish, um, I'm not sure they knew and the American skyscraper that I was Irish. They wanted to bring American music to Europe, so they bring me back to Europe. All these interviewers were coming to interview me and saying, you're Irish. And I was going, yeah, they heard my accent. And they said, but this is the American Roadshow. And I said, yeah, I don't think anybody in Columbia Records has noticed, so just do you mind not saying anything and just writing your article? They go, okay. Um, but I was touring at that time. With, there was four of us. There was a band called Sponge. There was Fiona Apple. Um, there was uh, myself and um, uh, the Fugees. And I think every night, just listening every night to Lauren and Whitecliffe and kind of riffing, and I got really into drum loops and all that kind of, you know, freestyle stuff you do, like you shout something up and she'd riff off it and she'd start, you know, doing all these internal rhymes. And I loved that. So somewhere since beginning to record snapshots and the end, I got really into that. And my A&R man's wife was quite ill at the time. So he, he didn't come over because he thought she's working with Rupert Hine in Chateau in France. They trusted Rupert, you know, big name producer. They knew he wasn't going to be, you know, 
Um, and they kind of trusted me at that point. They knew me. But what they didn't realize is I completely changed direction. Like they, they signed me as this slightly grunge, you know, uh, nose ring, you know, electric guitar slung around my neck kind of, you know. And I start coming out with drum loops and strings and, you know, completely different direction. Also, that was probably around that time in the 90s. You had, you know, Tricky, you had... Um, That's right, Beck uh, and all Beck, that. Yeah. yeah, you had... There, yeah. there was there were so many great, even English artists coming out with with drum loops and samples but were that kind of sound as well. And even now, like when people look at Sia, you know, Sia is such an amazing songwriter, but at that time, she was more like that. You know, she was very alternative and working with, with you know, bands that were using samples and everything. So that was kind of the in thing at the time, wasn't it? It changed a little. It was. And actually, I had a drum loop actually on the first album, very unusually enough. And in those days, this is going to make me really age me, but the way you got a drum loop was you got your two inch tape, you recorded a drum thing, you spliced it, you kind of sellotaped it, taped it together. You stood away from the machine with a can of aerosol or something and the loop went around the machines and you had to stand out to hold it because it wouldn't just go around the, the between the two revolving things, you know. And you no, I understand. And yeah, that's how you did a drum loop. In my day, <laughs> so so that was my oh, song called "Interesting." No, the first album we lost a drum loop, so I was actually kind of um, in one way ahead of the curve with the drum loop, which is that, that was how we did it. <laughs> um, so yeah, with snapshots, obviously technology had moved on a lot, and Rupert Tyne was very into loops and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, it was a whole different technique. But of course, then when Columbia Records were delivered this album, they went, "What the hell is this?" what the hell is this this was like your religious album for guess yeah it. kind of was because they had you know they had sort of signed me as this kind of and record companies are funny they don't sign in like they look well we have this space we want a a female artist who's this demographic who's into this and of course that meant nothing to me i just wanted to go where my heart took me so if i was into bluegrass i'd get into bluegrass if i my heart then took me to something else i'd go oh my god this is so great and i'd immerse myself and start writing songs like that and till the next phase took me so which by the way is not the way to be a successful artist i think to be a successful artist you should probably stick to the one thing and do it the whole way through like chrissy hines you know you know you could buy a chrissy hines album you know exactly what you're getting it'll be kind of the same as the one before no disrespect or a lover but kind of the same as the next one but it'll it'll be what it says on the tin um I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful to my audience, to my fans who stayed with me because they never know what they're going to get with me. Now, some of them love that, um, but I, re I really have tested their patience at times, you know. Um, and of course, after Snapshots, I went all acoustic with Yola. So, you know, I mean, like... <laughs> you know, that's the thing about artists. And, you know, some bands lose fans and gain new fans with different yeah. styles of music. And... You know, it happens with so many different artists. And, you know, it's like, I suppose, one of the most famous is when Bob Dylan put on the electric guitar and people were booing him, right. you know. Right. And but this is your right as an artist, you know, to do whatever you want. If you want to wear a kilt and Irish dance with bagpipes on your shoulders, that's your right. And the idea, obviously, if you try and keep the quality the same, if you try and, you know, if. if if you're having a bad period in your life and the songwriting's gone downhill and you have a different style, maybe you will lose those fans forever. But the point is, if you say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use drum loops, I'm going to use samples, I'm going to do improvisational jams. I mean, that's your right. And I always think we can't place too much emphasis on the fan being the owner of the music. I, I think it's, it's right once you're not being indulgent about it. 
I, I yeah. do see apps yeah. doing stuff like this and they're being completely indulgent and not disciplined enough. I think you have to go where your heart is taking you, but you have to be disciplined and you have to check yourself and go, is this really good? You know, I'm going to take some time here and I'm you know, going to come back to it and make sure this is really high quality. And if it's not, have the courage to scrap it and start again, you know. I think like this is the thing, isn't it? Fans sometimes say, oh, that, you know, that person brought out that album or that band and it's rubbish now and stuff. And, you know, maybe they only got on to, into listening to the band halfway through their third album and their previous albums were completely different. So it's kind of, as a fan, it's when you get on the train and some people get on the train and get off sometimes and then come back again. So what I always think with bands, if you love a band really, you have to forgive them the albums that you don't like because that's part of their musical journey, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I have an album called Out There and, you know, I would call it Out There because it was a bit out there. And <laughs> some people love it. I mean, they love it. And some people buy it and went, what the hell happened? Like, what, what, you know, how did you go from that to that? And some people, it's their famous, you know, favorite album. Um, and they thought, no, nothing you ever did was ever as good as out there. You know, so, you know, it was just one of these kind of things. I ha- I, I mean, I, I like it. It's it's very different to everything else. But like when you've, you know, when give you some wine, the latest album, that's my 16th solo album, you know. So and like that's not counting the collaborations and other kind of albums. You had the Thomas Moore project and that stuff yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, but like, so, I mean, when you've 16 down, you know, you're going to take routes that are not going to please everybody or that are going to be a little bit um, off the beaten track according to some people's tastes, I suppose. <laughs> Let's talk a little about your songwriting process, how it's changed, because obviously, you know, you're a multi-instrumentalist. You play piano, guitar, violin, so many other instruments, I imagine. So do you kind of get the melody in your head or is it usually you get the melody on the instrument first? What happens for you? Every song is different, to be honest with you, Simon. Sometimes I start with a groove. Sometimes I start with a, with a phrase, with a, a lyrical phrase. Like um, sometimes I start with, yeah, I would have a melody going around my head. Sometimes I'd have a chord mm. progression. Sometimes it'd be a riff. Um, when I started writing, I used to write in piano. Um, but I stopped that after a while because I found I was going over this. Because I've been playing piano since I was like three years. You know, you'd, you'd, you'd find yourself going over the same old chords all the time. I don't know if you can hear it, but you know, you'd start like, do you'd be on an E flat, you know, and you go, so you go, and then you go, B flat, B flat, B flat, C minor. You find the same progressions a lot of the time. The shapes, yeah, because your fingers were going to the shapes themselves. And one day I said, Muscle memory. Muscle memory, exactly, muscle memory. And I said, well, Why am I allowing my muscle memory, my fingers, to dictate to myself? oh what this chord should be yeah. this is stupid so i stopped that and i started writing on guitar but then i found i was kind of falling into the same grooves um and i thought well that shouldn't dictate the groove you know the, the like what's in my heart should dictate the groove or the subject matter should dictate the groove so after that i, I just write now with a piece of paper so i don't think there's manuscript paper there on the thing so more acapella type i just i have the manuscript in front of me and i hear the melody and i write it down and i write down the lyrics and i write down like orchestrations or you know if i feel drums be doing this bass be doing this i just kind of put shorthand as to what you know um, and that's how I write. So I do it on a train or I do it, you know, sometimes in a quiet room. Um. You know, I always laugh because if I ever get an idea for a song or I'm, you know, like even today I was in the kitchen and I was washing the dishes and I just went, I stopped washing the dishes and I went to the fridge or whatever. And then this kind of <laughs> came in my head and I was like, and 
it's funny because I'm I, I'm a bit shy like that when you know I wouldn't want people seeing me recording it down. I wouldn't be you know singing it out loud. So I had my phone and I was uh, like voice memos or whatever, and I was like singing the melody and then. Uh, my daughter came in she said what's he doing I said nothing nothing and I had it finished I had just done what I wanted to put down but I <laughs> find sometimes like that you can find like old bits of demos you've done or voice notes and the melody will be there but you'll be like <laughs> yeah yeah I do that I actually it's funny you say that because I uh, when I get it in my head I'm insufferable and people's my friends say we're talking to you but you're somewhere <laughs> yeah. else and you're just you're zoned out and it's just i'm like i'm working on, and a couple of times my friends will say you're working on a song aren't you and i go sorry sorry yeah yeah sorry it's in there it's it's tapping my brain the voice notes it's funny when i'm driving the car and i get ideas i know i dial myself on the on the hands-free and i dial my ah. own number and i let my phone pick up and i sing it onto my answering machine <laughs> Really? That's a good one. So I kind of go, okay, second verse. Idea for the second verse. Da, 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 and I kind of sing it like that. And yeah. I switch off and I hang up and then it's, oh, I've got a better version. And I dial myself again. You know, the <laughs> thing about the car is, and I often thought about this, but I never actually did something with it. So I'd, probably people have is, you know, when you're driving and you have like the melody and you're like, you know, I was sitting on the road, whatever. And then whenever you listen back, all the songs have the, the sound of the car traveling on the road. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. That and like. Yeah. So you, I'm sure somebody has gone. I'm actually going to put that in the song as its own melody. <laughs> oh, like it's not just that. If say, if you know, the washing machine comes, <laughs> yeah. it goes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I start doing harmonies to it, and like, oh, it's, it's, yeah. It's, then it's turned into like jingles and things. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> Are you a songwriter who? starts a song and finishes it or you come back and over to it you you know do you try and finish it in one go or depends, depends on the song depends on the song i mean sometimes sometimes they need to be left and they need to be come back to sometimes um i mean we co when i co-write i try to want to finish it you know because it's hard to get the people in the room even then i might have to do a follow-up visit um with really experience i mean i love writing with writers who do it all the time like you know um for the new album you know paul brady and myself we wrote one on zoom um and we always write together and then we stop and then we'll kind of just revisit it with a call later that night or a couple of days later, a call, okay, I've changed this bit. And nearly always he'll say, yeah, I did that too. Or, you know, I changed this right. word to that. So did I. Um, uh, same with Dave. I do a lot of work with Dave Rotheray. You know, same with him. But yeah, so apart from co-writing, when I want to try and get it done on the day, when I do it myself, it could be anything. Could be could finish it. Uh, I like the thing of time to revisit it on the next morning or the next because time is a great critic. You know, you'll come back fresh to something and think, oh, Eleanor, that's not as good yeah, as yeah, of course. Was, you know, um, or vice versa. Sometimes you know. Some people say the problem is that a lot of artists have personal bias. So, for example, when they hear a song they've written, they'll think, oh, wow, that's actually pretty good, and because it's part of their universe, their melody. But then someone else might listen to it who's impartial and go, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so unfortunately, personal bias, I think, affects some people in the sense that they think it's better than it is. Do you know what I mean? How do you feel about that? I don't know. I think I've got sometimes when I co-write a song, I don't like it much and somebody else loves it. And, you know, I've one song in particular, which I won't name, but I'm really not that mad on it. Actually, did go on to make a good few quid. So... I tell you what I'm really bad at. I'm really bad at picking singles. I don't seem to know the songs that'll be like when it came to the new album, um, 
the distributor I used to said Eleanor and I said, they said well pick a couple of singles and I said I'm useless at picking singles so I sent them out and they said well send them to six people in each territory so I sent them to six or nine people in Australia nine people in Germany nine people in America you know the territories I tend to work in and it was really interesting the ones that came back um, and they all zoned in on the same one or two or three and all put them in a specific order and there's no way in hell I could have done that just no way yeah and it was funny um they kept saying oh the christmas song the christmas what's the christmas song it's no christmas song and it was south Anne street and the event that south Anne street is written about happened at christmas time but there is no hint of christmas time in the lyrics there's nothing in the music to indicate it was christmas time it was i mean it's bizarre that music can embrace something it's funny isn't it though i always think with like 2000 miles by the pretenders chrissy hind it's kind of regarded as a christmas song for some people say oh yes a really christmas song and other people say no it's not you know but it's how it makes you feel and if it reminds you and gives you that nostalgic (laughs) feeling at christmas or being away from someone that's it isn't it absolutely absolutely it but in the way that like say that i'd never have had i'd never have made woman's heart a single you know i'm a bad judge so Certainly when it comes to my own songs, I, I don't, um, I'm not, I'm not the best judge of them. Yeah. And have you fallen into that trap where you've tried to do another woman's heart? Only a woman's heart. Have you, have you ever thought, oh, I wonder, could I write that again? No, I haven't. It, it's such an unusual song, to be honest with you. It's so, you know. It's unique. You know, the melody is very unusual. I don't think you could really write it again. No. Um, and uh, there's, there's certainly another, none of my other songs are like, like they're, you know, the next kind of big song I had after that was um, Precious Little. Well, Apologize was kind of a minor here, but then Precious Little was something totally different, couldn't be more different, um, you know. Um, and then Soph, Sophie was completely different again, completely different, you know, and that was the next one that really, you know, from the third album. A lot of your music went on to be in, you know, Six Feet Under and movie work. Again, all I have, yeah, that, and that wasn't me singing it. Now there was Caroline Lavelle, another great artist. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's great that your work then was recognized. And I was watching Derry Girls and there it was Woman's Heart in the <laughs> the second. I was going, yeah, I'm in Derry Girls. <laughs> that's good. You're like, that's it. I know that's I great. made it when I'm on Derry Girls. <laughs> yeah, it was great. I enjoy that, actually. Yeah. From here on in, then, I mean, do you, for you, do you see your music and your albums evolving even more? Or have you kind of found the style that you want to continue for the next few years? Oh, no, I see it evolving. Evolving. You're kidding. The same style. Me for a couple of years. You're joking, <laughs> Simon. What would I be doing with myself? Absolutely not. No, no, just no, went no, for no, the you, Jamaican yeah. reggae blues. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, um, you know, I, I get, I, I just different things take. I mean, you know, at the moment it's flugelhorn. I just love the flugelhorn. It's just, you know, a good bit of flugelhorn on this album. You know, um, uh, an instrument will just really appeal to me, and I'll go for it for a while, and I'll marry myself to it, and then I'll go off in another direction again. Um, right. And then, you know, I went through a really kind of particularly nasty breakup there, you know, so, and I limited myself to two songs and then I'm not going to do my first two albums all over again. I'm going to just limit myself to two songs on this album, do the two songs about that and then move on. And I did, yeah. You know, being a, a songwriter and being a co-writer, obviously, with lots of great other, other songwriters, how do you feel like what I mentioned earlier about the whole sampling and plagiarism now in music? Because unfortunately, we live in an era of, you know, TikTok and social media where the music that we all knew and loved in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s 
now is completely new to a new audience. So it's very easy for artists to say, we're going to use that drum loop or we're going to use that sample. And it always happened in the past, whether it be Elvis or Led Zeppelin. But now it's pretty blatant. To be honest, I like that. I think it's art. I think it's, you know, I think I, I think you credit it and you pay them. <laughs> but you go on and then you make something new out of it. I mean, Jesus, that's what composers have been doing for centuries. Bach did it, Zoltan Kodai did it, all the great composers did it. You know, Beethoven was robbing Thomas More songs, for God's sake. You know, the Irish poet and songwriter Thomas More. Beethoven. So, like, um, absolutely do it. Credit them and pay them. But do it and make something new out of it. It's fantastic. Um, and a lot of people then will go back to you know, the Fugees did it actually with you know Killing Me Softly and stuff. And it brought, it brought a lot of people back to the original song. A lot of people back, you know. Um, so no, no, I, I think I mean I don't do a whole lot of it myself. Certainly not in the new album. I didn't. But um, um, in fact, for I rather go blonde. I remember I wanted a plain chant. Um, I was writing a song about religion. About I was really angry at the church in Ireland and all of the child abuse stuff and. So I wrote a song called Deliver Me and kind of protested that. But I wanted a plain chant kind of thing. And uh, because I was an independent artist at the time and I couldn't afford the sample that you would have had to pay. So I actually wrote a whole plain chant thing. <laughs> In nomine Padre, e filius sanctus. And I wrote this whole thing and got my nephew, who had been a choir boy to report, recorded for me in all these different parts. And I pretended it was a sample, used it, looped it and used it in the song. I do agree with you. Like it is another type of art because obviously, but what I think, it ultimately shines through is that if nowadays, you know, it, someone might have a hit and then they might never have a hit again. There's a lot of one hit wonders. Um, and I think artists nowadays have to use more hooks and melodies that have been successful in the past. And I think a lot of it comes down to the producers more than the artists because the producers go, hey, you know, I saw recently a thing with Shakira and someone showed her like a, a, a sample from a famous song in the 80s and she said well let's use it everyone else is doing it and you're kind of going that's that's the influence of producers isn't it it is yeah and i have a bit of mm, the thing of producers writing songs i mean you find that a lot you know um um so, so i think sometimes producers influence the choice of songs too much rather than taking the choice of songs that are already there and enhancing it you know i think that role has been very blurred between producer and songwriter um, and I'm not sure that's always a good thing. I think there's a couple of very talented people doing it that can do both, but not sure it's always a good thing. How do you feel about the whole idea then of, you know, one word, a third, you know, like in the songs, when, when someone like these producers input a, a word or two into a song and all of a sudden they're on the songwriting credits. Do you feel that's gone out of control? Yeah, I do. I think there's people now, the songwriting, songs with songwriting credits are 16 writers and 12 writers yeah. and stuff. And I mean, really? And if you think about 12 writers, you know, that could give you 32 copyright holders because say you have a writer who's published with EMI in Britain and Sony Music in America and Warner, you know, uh, Warner in like the, you know, Asian territories, whatever you, you know, you've got four publishing or, you know, for copyright owners for that one writer. And then you multiply that by 12. It's it's just ludicrous. And, you know, if you program the bass drum, I don't think you should be a writer on the song. Or no, really don't. Um, no. But it's very few now. I mean, one or two or three co-writers or maybe a band. I understand a band writing together and they just split everything equally. I understand that. But because they're all in the room. That makes sense. But But I think the biggest fear, I suppose, for songwriters going to, 
uh, you know, any kind of publishing or record companies, if they say, oh, we're going to bring in these, you know, famous songwriters to help you finish the song. And you might say, well, I think the song is more or less finished as it is. And then they might input a word or and then you're kind of like, really, do they get that much of a cut? I don't think mm, I don't think that happens, to be honest with you. I think sometimes you do get artists who are brilliant artists. I mean, brilliant singers and they're not songwriters. And like it's and very often the more beautiful the voice somebody has, the worse songwriter they are. Because if you have a beautiful voice, you'll come up with any old line and it'll sound lovely. You know, if you're a song, if you have a terrible voice and you're a songwriter, you'll really have to make that melody interesting in order to to compel people to listen to it so I think sometimes artists are not the best songwriters and I think sometimes I listen to demo tapes from artists and I go oh god if only they'd had a professional writer and sometimes I think if those people are hooked up with one writer or maybe two professional writers you can get absolute gold dust but the bringing the producer in and somebody adds something no I don't I, I think that's gone way out of hand yeah. and and of course it happens more with younger artists and everything yeah, people does, who yeah. maybe are more naive isn't it yeah yeah, more malleable and more know, malleable. And exactly. They can't make money, you know, because it's very hard to make money now in the music industry. It's very, very hard. And like, um, without harping on about it, you know, when I started off, um, I had a bed sit in Rap Minds. I lived in it for seven years, and that's where I honed my craft, saved up all my money to buy my instruments. You know, recorded my demo tapes. I created my career in that one room bed sitting. And by the way, had parties in it and loved living there and had a lovely landlord and all that, you know. But my God, how do you do that now? How do you live in Dublin now? Or Galway or Cork or Limerick or, you know, how do you live in Ireland and do that now? I, I don't know how you do that now. No, the, the culture of being able to survive on a few quid now is gone. And even like if you were busking, you're probably you're never going to make enough to pay for those big flats, are you? No, or small, tiny flats. No, you're not. You know exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. It's it's tough, and I mean, this is the shame. Maybe this, you know, whole capitalism, consumerism, and inflation is killing all of that type of the music industry, where everything has to be, you know, can only be done by big record labels and big publishing houses, and. You know, the independent artist is making less and less. And Spotify, of course, that's a whole other story. But nowadays, you have to do it for the love of it, but you mightn't make money. Probably won't. Well, I think the streaming thing is changing. It is going up all the time. You know, the rates are going up. It is. I think it is all going well. It is going to, you are going to see the incomes increase from there. But at the moment, it's still anarchy out there. And I think it's going to take another few years before it settles down. I mean, the, the copyright directive being passed, the European copyright directive just made law here now only a few months ago. You know, I mean, that, that's going to make a big difference. It's already started to make a difference. Um, as the years go on, that's going to start making a bigger and bigger difference. That, that's really going to help things. Of course. And you also are, I think you still are chairman of IMRO, no? That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a job that takes up a lot of time or, you know? It takes up an awful lot of time, it really does. But you know what, I it's, it's a privilege to do it, it really is. Because to represent, you know, we've 18,000 members almost now in Nimro. And my God, even during the, you know, the lockdown, seeing the stuff that they produced, seeing how they managed, see the, how they flipped what they did and learned how to record at home or, you know, I was absolutely in awe. And then I was in awe of the material they were turning out um, and that they have elected a board of their organization and that that board have chosen me to be their chair. I feel incredibly privileged 
and for as you know um for the time that i'm there and it'll you know it won't be a long time it'll be a short time but for the time that i'm there i'm going to absolutely give it my best shot absolutely give it my best shot Brilliant. That's really good. And it's good to see that, you know, you're giving back in that sense because you've had such a great career. You still do have a great career, but the experience you've garnered and everything you've learned, the traps, the, you know, the distribution deals, the publishing deals, all of these things, you've so much you can give to Imro, you know? Well, I hope so. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, I have a lot of really great people around me. I mean, I think we have a particularly good board at the moment. I don't, you know, um, we've such you know I don't know if you know but we've a new uh, Faye from Soda Blonde you know who was a little green card she's just the newest member of the board we've got Roshi No we've got you know Brian Crosby Ray Harmon you know really really great writers um you know, some really great publishers as well. You know, Julia Martin, Steve Lindsay. We've, you know, two of the majors. We've got Sony around our table now. We've got Warner Brothers around our table. So, you know, um, we've big companies like that becoming members now too, um, which is great. So, we, you know, we're it's all raising up a bit. We're looking outwards. We've, we've members now from across 150 different countries. Um, so a lot of foreign members are joining Imran. That makes me so proud and so delighted that of all of the PROs they can join in the world, that they're joining us. Brilliant. That's really good. That's really good. So listen, it's been lovely talking to you. And I mean, it's, it's such a, an illustrious career and such a varied career. And, you know, looking back through your discography and looking at all the different styles <laughs> you came out with, like I know you say they're, they're not they different, different styles, styles, but different avenues you explored. So it's been amazing. And, and the thing is, long may it continue. And I always think don't be afraid to change your style or don't be afraid to change your look or whatever just do it yeah, isn't it absolutely go where your heart go where your heart leads you you know go where you know um your heart tells you to go i think is the and don't let the industry dictate stuff to you even though it's hard sometimes you know yeah yeah i'm going to ask you maybe you might do a song for us i will so eleanor you're going to do a song for us what's this song called i think especially for you uh, simon i'm going to do uh, one called the spanish word for heart it's on the new album uh, give me some wine and uh, it's called the spanish word for heart okay. oh very nice <laughs> Well, the Spanish word for heart is corazón. It's there in every second Spanish song. I have come to learn its meaning, but I might pronounce it wrong. The Spanish word for heart is corazón. Now the Germans say das Herz und die Liebe. The French say cur, the Irish say mochri. Don't know what they say in Denmark, I couldn't stay that long. But the Spanish word for heart is corazón. Oh, but there are those who don't know what it means. They will wear you down and trample on your dreams. They might speak a little Spanish, but it's not their mother tongue Because the Spanish word for heart is corazón Now I never really learned that much in school I was too busy playing guitar and playing the fool There was no teacher that could teach me What I had to learn alone Like the Spanish word for heart is corazón 
heard that life is richer when it's shared. So while there's wine to drink and music to be heard, I will raise my glass to all the hurts that I depend upon. Now the Spanish word for that is corazón. In Espanol, the Seamus Corazon. In this vuestra poesia y canción. Tal vez esta palabra no necesita traducción. In Espanol, the Seamus Corazon. Oh, the Spanish word for heart is Corazon. It's there in every second Spanish song. I have come to learn its meaning. Why did it take so long? The Spanish word for heart is corazón. Yes, the Spanish word for heart is corazón. Wow. <laughs> Very nice, really nice. Tu español está bien. <laughs> no, no, muy bien. <laughs> Very nice. Poco. It's nice, though. I like the lyrics because it, you know, I like the way you put the other countries in and everything. It's very nice. Lovely. I wrote it one night. I was doing, I had been just off a German tour and I was heading to Australia and uh, I was doing a gig in Bilbao on the way and I didn't have time to go home. Uh, but I got back to Dublin Airport to switch the suitcases over because, but I didn't actually get home. So I had somebody to meet me in the airport with a suitcase. So I flew German Frankfurt to Dublin to change the suitcase straight on a flight to Bilbao, went straight then on to uh, Brisbane. And when I got on stage in Brisbane, I was playing in a Danish club with Danish flags. I remember really bad with jet lag at the middle of a gig. I looked and there was Danish flags and I thought, where am I? Where am I? And I couldn't remember where I was. I remember going to bed, I was thinking, Jesus, Eleanor, I was exhausted and um, we'd had a screw up with the accommodation and a mate of mine came and rescued me and they lived in this fabulous house and they brought me to this lovely house and I was there thinking about friendship and kindness and countries and so I wrote, wrote that song that night. That was one I wrote actually all in one night. So <laughs> Great as well when you have the memory of when the song happened and you know what, what led up to it and everything. That's really nice because, you know, behind every song there's a story, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. And sometimes behind every song there's a lot of stories. A lot of stories all <laughs> intertwined. Well, listen, Eleanor, it's been an absolute privilege to have you in the show. I've really enjoyed the conversation and I love talking about music. I love talking to great musicians and great artists. And it's always an inspiration. I mean, when I talk to someone who's lived the life and continues living that life and continues putting out great music. So I want to commend you and thank you for coming on the show and, and best of luck with everything you do in the future. Thanks very much. I want to commend you for your questions and your own insights. They're really, really, really interesting. Really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Eleanor McAvoy, everybody. Thanks very much, Simon. Okay, thank you very much, Eleanor McAvoy, for appearing on the show. We really enjoyed that song and such a beautiful version of that, too. Thank you very much for putting it live for us. We love having guests like this on our podcast, and it's great to hear about your life so far and everything you've done and all the wonderful songs you've created and all the wonderful albums you've created also. So thank you, Eleanor. It's been a joy talking to you. We wish you the best with your future albums and everything you do. 
Thank you so much. And thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. It's been a pleasure having you here also. And as we get near the end of season two, we'd just like to remind you, please follow and subscribe. Spread the word. Tell everybody. This is the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay. It's been a pleasure having you here. Till the next time, take care. Look after your family. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.